read together. Starting in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy, set apart by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which is given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is one of these areas of Timothy that begins to become controversial with the pundits. And so we're going to take it slowly. We're going to work through it over the next few months. Um, it'll take, you know, six to eight weeks to get through this chapter effectively. And of course, Brother Trey is going to be continuing in Ephesians in weeks to come. And so we're just going to take our time. We're not in a hurry. The hearing of Scripture is sufficient, as we've already learned, as we've learned and will continue to learn, and the teaching of Scripture is sufficient. Sometimes, as Paul tells Timothy to do, we are to not just hear it, but to pause to teach it and then apply and instruct in it. And that is what I'm going to do today by dealing with the idea that what God has made is good. What God has made is good. Now think about that for a second, where Paul is talking to this young elder about the problem people in the church of Ephesus. These people who, in today's conversations, would be called heretics, wolves, dogs, pigs, snakes, and any other kind of vile goats. You think of any other negative animal. You know, gnats, <laughs> mosquitoes. And yet, the way he handles this in Christ-like manner is done in a way in which the people who would be called these things are open for correction and reconciliation. And more importantly, to keep the church at peace and in order doing that which the church is supposed to do. I don't know what type of training you all have had through the years. Maybe you've been trained to sew or to cook or to write or to sing. Maybe you have training in law enforcement or combat or something of that nature, but you know the training takes over. As a parent, we're constantly in training, and after a while we get used to it. We don't even know that we're following through the actions of certain things. And I remember when Grace was a very young child, and she had severe asthma, I mean deathly asthma. It was one of those, do not go to the hospital for she will die. If she goes to the ER, come straight to us. Don't take an asthmatic like her into an open cesspool of bacteria. 
and she would cough and her capillaries would break and she would cough up blood and then she would be sometimes not consciously aware that she was having the attack because the oxygen in her brain would be reduced to such a degree she would be going through the motions of coughing and blood and coughing and vomiting and blood and it was just a horrible thing. First time we experienced it, it was like trauma. This pulmonologist taught us, trained us how to deal with it, what to do. You just hold her, you put the thing over the mask, you just talk and it's just, blah, 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 you know, it was like an exorcism, but we didn't care. And a young guy who was part of um, the situation in Columbine was staying with us that week, one week in Virginia, and he was sitting on the sofa and talking to us, it was about 10 o'clock at night, and we heard the, ur, 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 you know, that's that bark, uh-oh. So we go to the room, we take Grace, we bring her to the living room, and she's gasping, so we put the mask on her and start the treatments and she's not having anything to do with that she begins to fight so we just hold her down she fights she vomits blood and Robin and I are just chilling and and this is going on and we don't think anything about this young man who's 26 years old looking at this exorcism of this child and we're just cool as beans y'all blood on the floor blood on the walls and we get through and she's asleep all is well and we're cleaning up and we get through and when we're all said and done we look and this kid is as pale as a piece of paper he goes, that was the most ungodly thing I've ever seen in my life. But y'all were so calm, I can't believe it. Because we were trained. We knew what to do, we knew how to respond. We knew that it was okay, that we just followed the discipline rules. We followed the, you know, and he was right, 911, 911. No, 911 is death. It's okay. Just be calm, you know. It's okay. You follow the discipline, the outcome. Is guaranteed. And that's what we do here. That's what we're doing here this morning. We're learning to follow the discipline, not of just learning rightly the teaching and making sure that our theological chops are growing and that our, that our spiritual things are, are taking place in the sense of our understanding of the truth, but also in the reality that that is part of application to a secondary matter that is of equal importance, which is to live as Christians. To live with the mind of Christ and what we do in the world. And how we relate to other drivers. And how we deal with the knuckleheads at the drive-thru. And how we handle our neighbors. And how we reconcile problems. And how we speak and think in our own minds about con the context of certain things that bother us. Our politics. The issues of economy. Religion and every other interaction that we have, you realize we're living a life of daily, every second of our lives, we are interacting in this world. The whole sum of our person is how we relate to what we experience for the glory of God as Christians. Now, the culture has then taken that reality, that idea, as we'll see this morning, and, and, and just changed it. Because everybody likes to be in control of other things. And if we're out of control, we like to press ourselves into a place of being in control. And beloved, when we think we're in control is the first indication that we're not. And so we're not in control this morning of anything except that we are going to be submitting to the discipline of the Lord and His teaching and love for us by listening. And by learning and by living accordingly. Here, Paul is dealing with these false teachers. And if you notice, he hasn't really talked about it. And I've said this before, but I want to say it very plainly and clearly. Paul does not talk about the, the error. Why? Because he doesn't want to expose the church to the brouhaha. It's none of their business. If I tell you that it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon and that it is, Friday after, it is Friday and it's January the 1st, 2023, you're going to go, he's crazy. Why? Because it doesn't matter. But if I insist upon these things and I continue to give you all the problems and what you're focusing on is how, I mean, you're going to know that this is not right because the truth is set. Yeah, you have watches and clocks and phones and everything. We don't even have to set our clocks back anymore. You know those clocks at the house that are still run on batteries that are the same time year-round? Or do they just tick and they never go? 
You're not going to be upset by things that are false when you know what is true. You're not going to be toppled over error if I try to feed you mud pie and tell you that it's chocolate. You know that it's not chocolate just by looking at it. You're not stupid. God's people are not stupid. We act that way sometimes. But we have the the Spirit of God. We have the power of Christ. We have the Word of God given to us through revelation and illumination. So we are not walking around as these dumb sheep. We're walking around as wise sheep. Are we? And so Paul says that what he really wants to show that is upsetting the church of Ephesus is not this erroneous theological idea, but that this, these erroneous theological ideas are imposing a behavioral change on the people of Ephesus. That they're beginning to become burdened on how they ought to think and relate to one another. They're not thinking about the discipline of doing what God has told them to do without exception in relating to one another, but they're being told to relate to other people in a different way based on some doctrinal differences to the point where they're being told, don't eat certain foods, don't drink certain drinks, don't wear certain clothes, don't think certain thoughts. And there is a way in which the Scripture does teach us those things, right? There are things in the Bible in principle and theological application that do teach us Things that we should and should not do. And these are prudent, wise, and must be listened to and heeded to and followed. Why? Because it is an act of worship that we hear and do the word of God. It is not about our justification before God. It is not about our redemption. It is not about us accepting or doing anything to prove our regeneration and all this other stuff. It is just the fact that we are recipients of grace. Therefore, we understand the words of Christ in simplicity. But there will always be people wanting to change you. And they will tell you that it's bad for you to sit in certain things or say certain things. And it may be the truth, but when it comes to the people of Christ, when we're submitting to what the Scripture teaches, and then there has to be a caveat or a justified argument that's external that says, well, you don't have to obey God here because of this, this, this. It's nonsense. Not only is it nonsense, that's a nice way of me saying it's pure evil. It's purely demonic. These are not my ideas nor my vocabulary. This is what Paul calls it and this is what James calls it. This is what Jesus calls it. And so what God has made is good. There were some people who were forbidding marriage. And when you think about marriage in the New Testament and when it's referred to, it's always the picture of Christ and more Importantly, you need to understand that marriage in its construction is about physical intimacy in the marriage bed as a way of experiencing and celebrating the physical, spiritual, and divine intimacy of Christ and His church. And I'll tell you something, beloved. We have messed that up in the world. We've messed that up in the church. I've been writing about that just personally in my journals over the last few months. And it has blown my mind just how, in, how toxic and poisoned my own viewpoints of marriage have been, even with the, the foundation that I have about how it reflects the gospel. It's still tainted. So these people are like, you can't eat certain things, give up the flesh, that's what makes you holy. Like the people of Galatia were told, you know, cut away the flesh, that's what makes you truly spiritual. Don't do that, don't do this, don't. And, and so don't get married. Don't engage in intimacy. Don't do this. And then don't eat these things. So Paul's instruction is very simple. What does he say? Look at verses 4 and 5. We're going to focus on these two verses. I was going to preach through the end of verse 10, but I'm thinking, that's not going to happen. 4 and 5, focusing on the application of what this teaches. He said, these false teachers have started to burden you and the church on forbidding marriages, abstaining from foods, changing the way they relate to other people. See, doesn't that change the way you relate to other people? Because when have you ever had a spiritual conviction in the local church that actually was personal, private, and nobody else's business? It doesn't happen. 
It doesn't happen. Because if it did, we wouldn't know about them. Because people like to flaunt their spiritual convictions. Would you like some of this? Oh, no, I just, you know, I like to honor the Lord. <laughs> Would you like to? No, 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 no. I, you know, we, we've grown in our spirit. We don't partake in that. You see, that's not the, that's not the voice of, and I'm not talking about things that are obviously sin. I'm talking about things that now have been burdened on our consciences. We relate to each other differently. So then when we, someone who was our best friend, who was our brother or sister in Christ, who we love and we've been walking together and we have intimacy, we've gone through hell and high water, we've gone through good and bad, we've gone through death and life, we've helped raise each other's children. Oh, you eat edamame. You wear baseball caps. I mean, silly stuff. <laughs> you read fiction. And I mean, this, these are extreme examples. But that's what's going on in, in Corinth. I mean, in Ephesus. It sounds like Corinth, doesn't it? So now all of a sudden, these relationships that were extremely intimate... Because of an undue burden of a false teacher imposing an obligation or a condition on fellowship, boom! Well, I can't really uh, hang out with him anymore. I don't want to hurt his feelings, so I'm just not going to say anything. I don't know what to do. Now I see this spiritual leader of mine, this mentor of mine, this brother of mine, this sister of mine, and I just can't relate to him anymore. Something's different. I can't do it. Why? Because they eat at a mammoth. Because they're married, and I just don't think they should be telling people to get married. Or they're doing this, or they're doing that, or they're engaged, or they're, they have too much liberty. What was the theological foundation of this? We don't know. And there's a reason. It is not prudent to know. That's why there are volumes on polemics, volumes on apologetics, volumes on false doctrine that are a thousand times larger than the Bible. <laughs> and so Paul's response is, this is ridiculous. These people are liars. And they're insincere and they think they're sincere. They're deceived. They have given in to the teaching of demons. What is the teaching of demons? To add to, to discredit, to disfigure, to frustrate Christ and his work. To lay burdens, fears, penalties on his people that the scripture would not lay. The doctrine of demons is when someone calls into question that which is absolutely sure. Did God really say? Is faith alone really faith alone? Do you really even have to have faith? See, that's a new one for me. I've been getting that the last six to eight months. Depends on what you mean. Well, thank God I have this letter because later it tells Timothy, an elder, so then also instructing me, have nothing to do with these little silly things. When we have solidarity and the foundation of simple teaching of the Bible, we don't even have to debate it. It's not beneficial. We can say, the Bible says this, moving right along. And that's going to be the sentiment when I teach that in a few weeks, moving right along. No. No. Remember those commercials? <laughs> What's the answer? Where's the back? No. No other answer but no. We're not talking about it. Till you get your behavior right and submit to the scripture by the command of God Almighty. So that sounds more authoritative when you say it like that, right? Then by the authority of the Lamb of God who died. For some reason that seems soft. But it's so powerful. Because it's a picture of grace rather than a picture of rule. 
Until you get that in subjection and yourself in subjection, there's nothing more to say. It happens every day. Paul says, there are things that people are telling you to do differently, to not to receive, to not to engage, to not to enjoy, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now think about that for just a moment. Is that you? Do you believe and know the truth? Yes, you do, beloved. It's not a trick question. The very idea that there are people who would impose upon any of us that we may not know the truth according to their standard is a, is a very bad problem. We are to have nothing to do with those types of people. Greet them in the mall. It's good to see you. Praying for you. But we're not to relate to those types of people. We're not to relate to them because they're dangerous. They're more dangerous than people who refuse to believe the gospel, who have no spiritual life whatsoever, and who live a life of debauchery in front of us and our children. These people who are spiritual on the outside, but suspicious on the inside, are more dangerous than atheists. We are to have nothing more to do with them. Until they change their behavior and come back and seek to be restored with a changed mind to the intimacy of grace alone. That's why I waited a year to preach out of this letter. Everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it has been set apart, made holy, for the use and the praise and the worth and the name of God, by the word of God and with prayer. So there are three specific things we want to look at here. Four, God creating things for our joy. And we are to receive them with thanksgiving, because these things have been made holy by the word and by prayer. It's pretty simple. But let's expound upon it for, uh, for a few minutes. Why? Because I think we gloss over this. And I don't want to assume that everybody is walking in the same step as I am. Because there are some things that I would look at in my lifetime that I have abstained from and looked down at people for. And that's hard for me because I never really thought I looked down at them, but I did. Even when we condescend in the context of inability or weakness, it's looking down. By definition. Oh, God bless his soul. He can't help himself. Wow. That's a log in my eye, by the way. Not a speck. In Romans chapter 8, Genesis chapter 3. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3 first. I won't, you don't have to read it. Just You know what it says. It talks about that which God has made. Genesis chapter, I mean the fall. And that what God had made then is distorted. Right? So God created all things. And several times in Genesis 1 and 2, it says God had made these things and it was good. It was good, 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 he created man, it was good, oh, it was not good. What was not good? That man was alone. What's the picture of? Man can't be alone and stand in righteousness. That's, that's all that marriage means. That's all that it means. So out of Adam's wounds... Come that woman out of man who is part of him. Out of his sleeping, out of his dying, if you will, in a metaphorical sense. Comes the one from him that is of him, that is part of him, and together they are the one. This is Christ and his church through the death of Christ. 
We are one with him. He is our husband and draws head. We are his bride. We are one flesh. And out of our one flesh, out of Christ's flesh, comes life. And it is good. And then these two together then, as picture of Christ and the church, are left to themselves with the promises of eternal life. And there's no other option for them but failure. God did not make Eve believe the lie. He did not make either of the first couple sin. But it is God's design and decree that they would. Because in God's infinite wisdom, He created everything as it is for the purpose of showing everything as it is. Even in the greatest of tabernacles, the presence of walking in the cool of the day with God the Son Himself, the creator of the cosmos, being told all of this is yours. You are the king and queen of the universe. And you will never die. Just don't touch these two trees. Don't eat from these two trees. Without the true head, our husband, we pick the lie. And only God can take chaos and turn it good. That's the point of creation. That's the point of Adam and Eve, and that's the point of the fall. It is the gospel of grace, which is sovereign and free, and there is no other point to which we should take home and teach our children or our grandchildren or their children about it. All that's in view here. And then what has happened with what God has called good, we ruined And we've been in the business of ruining good since the beginning. And God has been in the business of showing His goodness and sovereignty and salvation since the beginning. And that's the context in which we end up and land in verse 10, by the way, which we're not going to get to for several weeks, where Christ is the Savior, God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. In Romans 8, Paul begins to talk to these Christians who are truly measuring themselves by the spiritual foundations of their Jewish brothers and sisters, saying there's no way that we can be on equal standing with you all for thousands of years who have followed the law of God and known the truth. And now we come along and yesterday I was worshiping Artemis and today I'm following Christ. This is not good. And Paul says it's good. Because when they are left to themselves without divine grace, even with the oracles of God, they take to themselves the power to stand in the righteousness of God and then blame Him for it. That's Romans 9, 10. In Romans 8, Paul uses Genesis 1 and 2. And the effects of Genesis 3 to say, For the creation was subjected to uselessness. To futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, the Creator. In hope that the creation itself will be set free, think about that, from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, we share our head's glory because we are one body. I don't have a beautiful left hand. That defines me. You see? Nothing beautiful about me. Except I belong to Christ. And even creation. Will be set free from its bondage. For we know that the whole creation. Has been groaning together. In the pains of childbirth. Until now. It's a picture. So everything that God has made for us, everything that God has promised to us is good. At the end of Romans 8, Paul expressly gives some just, 
I don't know, just I don't even want to say bedrock, it's deeper than that. It's a core of our hope and joy and that I read it last week, we are unable to be separated from the love of God because Christ is and has come and has been raised. So nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing can separate us from God's goodness. Nothing should be separating us from God's people. Nothing should be establishing any type of separation or discord whatsoever with things that God has promised are good for us. For our joy is full because we are in Christ and Christ is all in all. I was thinking about this this week and last week and I... I thought to myself, you know how much time I spend lamenting that which I have lost or do not have? The very definition of discontent. To the point where now I'm discerning if I'm malcontent in my own heart against myself. Don't go there. Rather than enjoying the blessings of God's promises today... It's easy for us to say what we wish we had, shoulda, coulda, woulda done different, wish we could have today. Look what we did have. But we have it all right now. God is not a God of withholding. God is not a father who, when his children cry for bread, give them a snake and go, we'll see if they can eat that. These are the jokes that Jesus told. They were extremely pointed. Daddy, I'm hungry. More, please. And give him a rock. (laughs) Stupid kid. That's not our father. So what are these things that Paul's talking about? Here's an easy answer. Holistic answer. If we can thank God for it and rejoice in in the blessing of it, it's free. For us to have. So next time I go fill up at the pump. I'm going to go in there and say. I thank God for this gas. (laughs) And the dinosaurs who made it. I'm not going to pay for it today. (laughs) I get me a free ministry. Smith Correctional down here. If we can thank God. For it. We can understand the place of things. We can understand their purpose. But there are things that we can do. There are things that we can partake in that can be evil, right? Let's not mistake it. Let's not let someone accuse me of, you know, licensure to sin. Well, Tippins is handing out sin cards. That's nonsense. Nobody's doing that. Galatians 5, now the works of the flesh are evident. What does Paul say to these people? The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality. Well, I don't engage in that. Yes, you have. I don't care how old you are, how long you've been here, how young you are. We all have. Even if it is listening or seeing, we've done it. Thinking, we've done it. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery, that little phrase right there, that little word right there. Uh, I, had to, I was a closet magician when I was in elementary school. Sorcery. Yeah, if I was really a sorcerer, it wouldn't be sponge balls and ace of spades. It would be pulling out gold nuggets. Enmity. Strife. Jealousy. Fits of rage. Rivalries. Dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. What? Then he goes, I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we're not going there. I just want to hang that out on a limb, on the ledge. We know what is good and what is not. We know what is profitable and what is not. We know the attitudes of our flesh. And when we justify them and say that what we are doing justifies 
or, or, or that, that there's a circumstance in which justifies our sinfulness. Even if it is righteous, we are lying. Love believes all things. And when we don't, we're lying. And somebody has argued with me. I had a mentor argue with me back in, when was 2005? When I said something from the pulpit and a week or so later this guy comes and we're talking and he says, you know, I want to I challenge you on this. Because what I said was, when we put on our socks, we can worship. And I really believed that. And at the time, it was a very difficult time. For our household. I didn't want to put on my socks. I didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to fall into the abyss. Disappear. You ever been there? And so I'm putting on my socks. And I'm thinking. Can I worship God doing this? Yes I can. I can thank him for the sock. I mean believe it or not. There are people in the world who would love to have a pack of socks. You send them money, gold, jewelry, toys. I'm like, oh, crap, my feet are cold. I'm dying. Socks. Praise the Lord. First world problems, folks. Now these socks don't match my shoes. That's okay. Let's just not forget other people would take either. So whatever you do, Galatians tells us what we shouldn't do. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 teaches us some things that we should do. So whether you eat... Or whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all to reveal the nature and the person and the perfection and the essence and the name. That's what it means to see someone's glory, is to see all that he is. And if you remember when I was teaching through John chapter 1, I, I used the example of just like being naked. You see us for everything we are. Exposed a revelation of God to his people. He has exposed himself as he has decided to expose himself. That is God's glory. We see him. And so we can see him in everything, in everything we do, and everything we strive to do. Paul tells the same thing to the church of Colossae. He says in, for, in chapter 3, verse 17 of Colossians, he says, And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And what have we done? In our culture, we've made all these things, little teensy, tiny thing, buttons that we push. Well, let's say the blessing. I'm not saying it's bad to do so. I'm just saying this is the only place in the world that we really do that. It's the only culture that has this pause and repeat commercial that we call a prayer. It's just, we're not praying most of the time, Kemp's, <laughs> Belk, Amazon. You know where the offering plate comes from? Pagan sacrifices. You know where the podium comes from? Just... I'm not even going to tell you. I mean, everything we do has a source. Nothing's new under the sun. Just because a pagan or a devil worshiper, like I said, I don't think they're as dangerous as self-righteous people. We have the liberty to celebrate things. We have the liberty... And even though we might not do them in the corporate worship, because we understand the conscience. And we understand that there is greater things that we should focus on rather than the cultural aspects of Christ. There's nothing wrong with celebrating the advent of the Lord in any way you choose. There's something extremely wrong with thinking that we have to observe the festivals of Israel and thinking that they're more spiritual than Easter that holds the name of a goddess of fertility, Esther. Does it matter? No, it doesn't matter. And it's 
It's long been time for us as Christians, as people who understand the grace of God, to put our foot down softly and say, I'm not having anything to do with these conversations. If you want to discuss them so that you may grow, that's fine. But if you want to discuss these so you can load up against me, I'm through with you. And many of us have been there, haven't we? I know for home educators, we can we got some knuckleheads in some of those groups. And you're going in there, I'm just excited about teaching my children. And then you're like, I'm going to hell. And they're all going to hell because we're doing it wrong. We're not using the right curriculum. We bought a book that was from Barnes & Noble and not Lifeway. You bought a book from Lifeway, you're going to hell. I mean, you know, there's no winning. You mean your children don't read Greek? Oh. God's glory. No, neither did John. He didn't write it very well either. <laughs> the Word of God sets things apart, not us. The Word of God, not culture. The Word of God sets things apart. The Word of God sets us apart. What does Romans 10 tell us? Faith comes through hearing. Hearing comes through the speech of Christ. The teachings of Christ. The supernatural hearing. Like everything in John's Gospel leads up to one thing. Leads up to the purpose of the writing in and of itself is that as the writer tells us, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and by believing you may have eternal life in His name. What is written? John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us and has shown us the fullness of who God is. He is the God who sits at the right hand of God. John chapter 2. The calling. The miracles. John chapter 3. The teacher of all Israel with everything and all understanding of the doctrines and theologies of the precepts of God from the days of the garden from Moses and beyond. And yet he had to be told you must be born anew by the Spirit. And John chapter 4. And it goes on and on and on. Jesus is rejected by his own people as chapter 1 said that he would be. His own people of the flesh. But he came to those who are in discord. Who are trying to find their own way. Who are doing things and living according to the flesh. Of course you do not have one husband. You've had five. And the man you live with now is not your husband. That's why you're hiding, hiding and getting your water way out here in the middle of nowhere. You don't even want to be seen in town. And it is a picture of what God does in the salvation of his people by the Spirit. That Nicodemus is born by the Spirit and sees and understands. And the woman at Sychar sees and understands. And the cripple at Bethesda, or Bethesda, and then the blind man, and everybody else in between. There's always an excuse as to why these things are taking place. And the scripture teaches us that they took place, that God the Son may be glorified in them. The feeding of the masses, of the multitudes, that Jesus may call himself the bread of life. And everybody there, every single person there go, this is odd. I'm going home now. And only because they'd forsaken everything else, Jesus turns to the twelve, word about y'all. You have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? They didn't understand them. But they knew that Jesus was their only hope. John chapter 7, John chapter 8, we see it over and over and over and over again. It's the picture of God giving life. First Thessalonians 5, you all know this verse. I've seen it cross-stitched into a thousand things. Stenciled and Calligraphied. Give thanks in all circumstances. Right? This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The Word of God establishes our thankfulness. The Word of God establishes our joy. Ephesians 5.20 says the same thing, doesn't it? Give thanks, giving thanks... In everything and for always and for everything. To God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. But look at this for a second. Everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanks. If you can thank God for it, 
We can receive it. For it is made holy, it is set apart by the word of God and prayer. So Paul's already said those who believe and know the truth can receive these things and ought not to be told how they ought to relate to the world around them by people who don't know what they're talking about. They ought not to be taught how they are to deal with divisions and problems and relationships by people who don't know what they're talking about. And how do we know who knows and who doesn't know what they're talking about by the way they apply the Bible? Not the doctrinal perfection of how they explain the theology, but it's how they apply it. And those who don't believe that will then begin to apply what I just said against me and you. Have nothing else to do with them. Everything that we have in Christ is good. And it is made holy by the word of God. In other words, we can study the scripture and then by reading the scripture, by reading the scripture in its fullness, reading Timothy. I read a lot of prophets this week. It was good stuff. And then hard. And then I got lost and I had to start over because I was daydreaming for like eight minutes. I was listening to Joel. I'm going, oh, I'm lost. Let me back up. listen to it and then God teaches me and then I can see wow this isn't a this isn't a precept for me why am I living in this burden why am I walking in this place why am I imposing this nonsense on people who I call my friends this is good thank you God for this good thing and even the restrictions are good aren't they there's things that we shouldn't be engaging in But it's set apart by the Word of God. The Word of God is where we go to get wisdom. But it's not just that. It's not just studying the Bible. Because reading the Bible is not anything in and of itself if the Spirit of God isn't leading us then to do things with it. The Spirit of God hasn't taught us anything if we aren't doing something with it. Because believe it or not, even when we read fiction, we cosplay. And for the brothers in the room, we watch YouTube, that's our fiction, tactical defense stuff, and then we buy all that crap and we cosplay in the yard. It's still make-believe. It's make-believe. But we like it. But yet, we're not even doing the make-believe of the Bible. We'll impose life-changing things in our thoughts, our words, our actions, our interactions, pop culture references, funny things, humorous things, good things, entertaining things. And we can build an entire community and an entire intimacy and an entire relationship around those things that the world has shown us. Songs and literature and film and art in every sense and form. Fashion. I love clothes. I love to see interesting clothes. Some of them I would not be caught dead in, nor would I even want to waste a match to set them on fire, but I still appreciate the art. But yet when it comes to the Bible, we're often just sitting there going, well, I know this now. And so what's the first step of application? Look at that. Word of God. Prayer. Paul's first instruction, first instruction was to charge as an elder, to charge these people to hush, to be quiet, and to fall in line with the, prop, with the disciplines of the faith and their behavior. And then he says, in charge, entrust, excuse me, charge, I entrust you, Timothy, to charge the people of God to pray. What does prayer do? Prayer does a lot of stuff. Prayer sets us apart in application. It sets our will to His. I think there are five or six things. Think about these. 
sets our will to his. In other words, Lord, your will be done, not mine. Remember, I haven't said it a lot lately, but I need to get back into this practice in my own self, my own mind, my own countenance. Turn my thoughts to prayers. Pray rather than ponder. It's a good, wise thing to do. Because when I pray, I'm dependent upon God to change my mind and to keep me focused on His. We sandblast our entire living room just because we think the color needs to be changed and then we've got dirt everywhere. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge for it will be, listen, pleasant if you keep them within you, if all of them are ready on your lips, that your trust may be in the Lord. I've made them known to you today, even to you. Prayer sets apart our minds to his wisdom. Prayer, as Paul teaches several times over, sets apart our heart to his what? To his son, to his love, to Christ. It sets apart our affections. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 18, says praying at all times in the spirit. What is Paul saying? We ought to be praying at all times in the spirit. See, this is the, right after the instruction of all this relationship thing. Relationship to bosses and masters and slaves and employees and leaders, and then the familial relationships in the context of the local church and submission between husband and wife mutually, and then children and parents, and then as unto the Lord Jesus Christ, just a big picture of wisdom, of putting our heart more in tune with Christ. And then Paul's remedy is through all of this, all this instruction I've given you, you need to pray in the Spirit at all times and supplicate. Pray for other people. To that end, then keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, petitioning the Father for the saints, asking and repeating and inquiring. And not only for the saints, but Paul says also for me, what does Paul ask for prayer in Ephesians 6? He says that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the gospel and its mystery. For which I am a messenger of God in chains, then I may declare it boldly, then I may know how I ought to speak. When's the last time we prayed for how we ought to open our mouths? Sunday morning for me. Prayer sets us apart in our affections, and prayer sets us apart in our needs knowing that he is sovereign in our needs his providence supplies all things as james would instruct the church in the dispersia he'd say listen don't make plans as if you've got it all together and going to go do it say i'm making plans and do well to do so but if the lord wills because god can stop any good plan so prayer sets apart our needs to him and then not ultimately, and not even the most important, but finally, I just left this for last because it popped into my head last, but prayer sets us apart in practice on our mission toward heaven, toward eternity, toward glory. If we're going to do everything, eat and drink, say word and deed for the glory of God, if we're going to do all these things and receive that which is good and know that which is good, we seek the wisdom of God, we pray. It's, not, it's, one, thing to, it's one thing to read and learn, but it's another thing to apply and pray. Father, now I see. What does learning without prayer and application do? It puffs up. It brings conceit and arrogance. I mean... Paul talks about this later in this letter and in the next one. He talks about it passionately, almost aggressively. He talks about it. Paul's pointing his preaching. Paul knows firsthand what arrogant knowledge does and what being puffed up is all about. You talk about zeal. How in the name of God and of the Lord of hosts do we kill his people and malign them and slander them, and murder them. That's what religious zealots do. They are not doing the the Lord's work. They're not learning the Bible. 
What is our mission? Is he serving others? To consider the needs of others more important than the needs of ourselves? Isn't that hard? Sometimes we even find the needs of others as it satisfies our needs. <laughs> Isn't that a double-edged mess? But praise God that our righteousness is Jesus Christ who did not put his own glory ahead of us. He did not put his own glory against the call and the mission that he'd been given. He came to give eternal life through his own body and through his own blood. And so our mission toward glory is a life that we live now in Christ Jesus, saved forevermore, and that we live together in that journey as we also share the gospel of grace to the world around us, to everyone that God gives us opportunity to do, whether we are pumping gas or whether we... And I, I say that a lot because that I talk to people every time I'm pumping gas. Every single... I can't help myself. I don't know why, but when they're standing there staring off into space and you're three feet away, it just seems odd to not speak. It's just odd to me. As if they're not standing there and I can smell their cologne or their perfume. Or see the, the ladybug in their hair. Man, you got a ladybug in your hair. Not a, lo a love bug in your hair. Two of them. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Are you sorry? You didn't put it there. Just speak. And then in those opportunities, small talk always centers around the price of gas. The politics involved behind it. Or the weather. And there's always a way of having some positive opportunity to speak truth. It just comes natural when we're disciplined to do it. It's not what you should do. It's what I do. But if I'm in a crowd, I'm going to hide. 400 people, I'm going to like, oh my gosh, I'm going to shoot my way out of here. I'm never going to make it. I'm never going to survive. Don't touch me. Don't look at me. Stop talking. You know, just differences. Evangelism is not this contrived thing that we must go and press in to pursue. It's something that we do through prayer. Father, not only today do you order my steps and that I may serve your people and serve the community in which I live with humility that, may, that your name may be praised, but also, Father, as the opportunity comes, may I share the hope of Christ. It's the simplest thing, yet it's the hardest thing that we can do is to pray for that because it's easy to share the complaints of the world and the sins and the problems of the world and our own proclivities and all these other burdens and things that God has given us to be free in our conscience to deal with and share them as if they matter in the kingdom of grace. As if there's some extra currency rolling around that we're going to carry with us into heaven and say, oh yeah, you might have grace in your pocket, but guess what I've got? I've got all my politics. I got all my health and nutrition. It's worth some value, but it's not ultimate. Because one day, it don't matter how healthy you are, you're going to die. <laughs> Disease and injury and decay is going to find us. Most of us are going to be wearing glasses in 10 years. It doesn't matter. Our joy is complete and full and the perfect work of Christ, and everything that God has given us is to be received with thanksgiving because it is set apart by the Word, and we know it because of the Word, and by prayer that we learn how to live it and apply it accordingly. In that sense, we know that we are doing what we are called to do today because the Word of God instructs us to do so. And we don't have to pray, God, should I be in church today? Is it your will I'm in fellowship today? No, it is always the will of God that you're in fellowship. It is the will of God that you are in with the body. It is the will of God that we pray. It is the will of God that we live a life of peace. Everything else, we have to work out together through the Scripture and through prayer. That being said, let us pray as we take the Lord's table and sing praises to His name. We thank You, Father, for this, just the comfort that You give us in Your Word and the peace that comes, the instruction that You've shown us. As simple as it may be, just everything you've given us is good. We ought to praise you for it, Lord. We could have said that and moved along to something else, but Lord, that's often part of our problem, as you've made me aware, is that we move too quickly into something else and we forget about the good of the simple things, to expound upon the simple things. We don't need to go through so many things that we forget the very one thing that we need to work on. 
So, Father, help us to work as if we are, as we are, not if. Help us to work as we are, instruments of your glory and the work of your hands, recipients of your, glory, of your grace and love. And to receive the teaching of your word without disdain and frustration, but, Lord, with comfort. And we thank you, Lord, for calling us to pray. Help us to pray for one another. When we think of each other, Lord, help us to pray rather than just worry and lament and ponder. Let us pray and, and then praise you for what you do. When we look out the window of life and see all the things that you have caused to bloom and to harvest, not in the way that we think they should be, but, Father, in your perfect wisdom. And we praise you for that. And when we cannot pray as you teach in your scripture, Lord, your spirit will pray for us so that the will that you have discerned for our good is going to come to pass in our lives. And teach us contentment. Teach us love. Teach us sacrifice. As we continue to learn that all these things are Christ. And in him we are Yours. Amen.